Coming home, part two from Philemon, verses 8 to 25. So we are in a series called Short Letters, looking at the four one-chapter letters in the New Testament. Now last week we did an introduction to Philemon, and the background, as, as explained, was a, is a, a runaway slave called Onesimus, who is now converted under Paul's ministry all the way in Rome. Now he's about to be sent back home to his Christian master, Philemon, who lives in the city of Colossae. He's not going to go empty-handed because he's going to carry with him this letter that uh, we are going through. I also spoke on the, in, the institution of slavery as it was through civilization, and uh, in the context here it's from 2,000 years ago. And for all that time, for the first thousands of years of slavery, skin, the colour of one's skin really wasn't that much of an issue because there were whites, there were blacks, it, it was really more about money, power. That's how they treated it. In the following introduction, I want you to pay attention. And it's going to make some of you feel a little bit uncomfortable. I know that. Because I want to bring it historically, his slavery a little bit closer to home and see how Christians treated slavery in the US and in the UK some 300 years ago. But by this time, sadly, skin colour was an issue. So this is the, the introduction. The first great awakening was a revival that happened in what, what was then the American British colony from the years 1730 to 1770. And one of the towering figures that God used was Jonathan Edwards. For many, just to understand who, who he was, for many there is Jesus, there is Paul, there is Augustine, there is Calvin, and then there is Edwards. Maybe some have it in a different order, but that's just historically, uh, that's... That's how, how, what a great figure, especially in the Reformed Church, he is. Now, he was gifted with great intellect and, and, and left an incredible legacy in preaching and writing that impacted not just the church, but society at large. And his, his method of, of, of preaching and, and it, it was, it's very different to another person that I will mention soon, but he, he would read, basically, for two hours. Two hours, right? He would read. Unemotional, just, just read, and people would be weeping, they would be repenting of their sins, and that's something that God used during the Great Awakening. But his impact was more than just within the, the confines of the church, because it, he, he was also a deep thinker and philosopher, and, and impacted the ways that that the American colony eventually gained independence and the laws and the constitution that was... So his impact was, was tremendous. 
Where am I getting it? On the one hand, he spoke against the evils of slavery and condemned the African slave trade. At a time when skin colour was an issue, he evangelised the black slaves as well as the Native Americans, the Indians, and considered them his equals and welcomed them as members. He baptised them and welcomed them as members in his church. This is all good. This is what one would expect. But on the other hand, there is a disturbing fact in that he himself had three slaves. We will give them names. So this was their actual names. Venus, Titus and Leah. And more than that, what is disturbing is that he wrote defending the rights of pastors to have slaves. Are you comfortable still? Another incredible man God used during the first Great Awakening was George Whitfield. He was very different. His presentation was very different to Jonathan Edwards. Like I said, he was just be reading for two hours. Whitfield was very different. He would, uh, he was, you know, he was highly emotive. He travelled, whereas Edwards just confined his ministry to one particular area in the states. Whitfield travelled from England to the US and. and he, uh, he was a very different type of preacher. Upon arriving from England, Whitfield also spoke against the evils of slavery. But as, a, as time went on, his tune changed. And then he started to see slavery as a necessary evil. Part of his ministry... Uh, which was a great ministry, was because of the situation, he saw a need and he established an orphanage in Georgia, in the state of Georgia. But as the ministry grew, he desperately needed help to take care of the kids. He had more than 100 kids and he continued to grow. And to help run the ministry, he decided to bring some slaves from inner state. Thing is that slavery was illegal in Georgia. But with pressure, particularly his pressure, the law changed and he was able to get slaves from across the border to run his ministry. He's still comfortable. Someone else who spent some time in the colony in his early years, was John Wesley. You should recognise the name. He was also used powerfully by God, but more so in his native England. But he did spend time in the colony. He came from a different theological tradition. He was Armenian. And uh, if you want to know the difference between Armenian and Reform, then just ask Ted. He can explain it to you. Uh, he's, uh, he was used very powerful, very powerfully by God. And he was, like I said, very, he came from a different theological tradition to Edwards and Whitfield. But there was another big difference, and it was his stance against slavery. 
after witnessing, after witnessing firsthand the suffering in the South, he was convinced of the evils of slavery and, and he was determined to abolish it with all his strength. And, he, and his, his strength, his determination increased over the years rather than diminish. Just a few days before dying on his deathbed, he wrote to a young British politician. His name was William Wilberforce. This was part of his charge, his letter of encouragement to Wilberforce. Be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, and in, and in brackets, the vilest that ever saw the sun. American slavery, slavery shall vanish away before it. End of quote. Now William, he took these words very seriously as he championed the cause of the slaves until it was declared illegal at the abolition. Now, looking back, it is obvious that some Christian leaders stood on the right side of history by fiercely opposing slavery, while others did not. So, what are we to do with this? Do we excuse them by just highlighting all the good that these men did? Do we simply say that they were men of their times? That, that while their support of slavery was not excusable, it was at least understandable. Will that do? And, and you ask yourself, no, that doesn't still fall short. Because how could respectable Christian leaders look at the scriptures and meditate on the text like this letter that we are looking at of Philemon and come to very different conclusions to support their views? Maybe this stuff makes you feel a little angry. Do we then go and support the whole cancel culture by you know, pulling down statues and, and burning all the books written by these men because of... You know, do we cancel all their legacy, all their great work because of this? It should make us marvel that God, in fact, uses any of us, doesn't it? That rather than cancelling us, of our deeds, he showers us with his mercy. And this takes us to the passage before us, which is, if, if, you, if you listen to the words that were read, it is dripping in grace. And if you haven't paid attention to it before, I want you to pay attention to it now. So verses 8 to 11, we see the appeal. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. 
Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And any time, you must understand that any time you bring people together from such varied backgrounds, you have the potential for either conflict or glory. What's worse is that these people lived in a culture that accepted oppression, injustice as a normal way of life. Who do we have? We have the Apostle Paul, a former Pharisee. We have Philemon, Philemon, a, a wealthy businessman. Onesimus, a runaway slave. We have the rest of the church that met in Philemon's home. And, and, and finally, the rest of the pagan community that in, in Colossae that, that, that looked and, and, and saw and witnessed what was happening with these Christians. So if Paul could persuade Philemon not just to forgive this slave, but to accept him as a brother in Christ, the word would, spe- would spread very quickly to the rest of the community. So when people ask, so, so tell me again, why did Philemon forgive his slave? They would hear, because he follows Jesus, who taught his followers to love one another. And so because of this, the, the, the potential for the gospel and the glory of God was great. And, and it gives us a glimpse on how it is that despite all the injustice, all the oppression, all the, 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 there was no dignity to life and all the suffering in that time, how it is that over a period of time, and by, certainly by 300 AD, that the whole of the tune of the, even the Roman Empire changed when Christianity was accepted. Change is slow, isn't it? takes time. It is interesting that the very name Onesimus means useful. And Paul played on that name by saying, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. It would appear that even while Onesimus was at home, his, his attitude to his duties, to his task, would have been somewhat, you know, like those... Come on, go and do your chores. I'm not going to do that. Like, like, um, no, there are no kids who behave like this. I know, everybody's very obedient. His attitude to his task and duty was obviously, you know, until he said, basically, I've had enough, I'm going. That's why Paul says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's, he's become useful to both you and to me. So, so Paul knew that on Messimus, had a great future because now he was changed. Now he was different. But now, as he was sending him back, it would have been up to Philemon to see that and to see his response. Yes, as a theologian, Paul could appeal to his mind by saying, Philemon, you need to do this, you need to do the right thing, and here are my reasons, all systematically, and explain to him, end of discussion, that's it. He could have said that. Or he could have appealed to, to him on the basis of his authority as an apostle 
just told him, you know, pull rank on him and say, Philemon, accept Onesimus, no questions asked, this is what you're going to do. He could have, he didn't. He chose to approach him as a friend and not as a boss. And now, as an old man who has seen the hand of God in so many different ways, he he has seen the hand of God intervene miraculously, change people and circumstances, he would rather appeal to him on the basis of love. Grace, mercy. He wanted Philemon's forgiveness and acceptance of Onesimus to come from his own heart rather than something that is imposed to come from him, not grudgingly. All right. Not like that. It's no different today, is it? The world is watching the lives of Christians to see whether they really are different because of the gospel. Does following Christ make a difference in our lives? Does it make a difference in our homes? It's hard, isn't it? Because this doesn't happen automatically. Because why? Because we need to be prepared to pay the cost. Which is what we're going to look at the following verses. The cost, verses 12 to 19. I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. This is how special Onesimus had become to Paul back in Rome. I would have liked to, to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. I didn't want to do that without your consent, so that any favour you do would not seem forced, there's that word again, but would be voluntary. And perhaps the reason why he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. And look at this, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. is very dear to me but even dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. You, you can see in these words that in a society where slaves were treated as low class, as, as nothing, as just the masters could do everything they wanted with their slaves, they had no rights. No. You can see the Apostle Paul lifting the very status of them and saying, a fellow man a brother in the Lord. Consider me, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done to you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, I am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. And not to mention that you owe me your very self. That's why we're saying that it's it's very likely that the Apostle Paul led Philemon to the Lord back in the city of of Ephesus. Now, at at this time, just some background, at this time it's very likely that the Apostle Paul 
was between the age of 55 and 60. About my age, right? But the old soldier has suffered a lot, right? His body was wearing out. Nevertheless, he's not giving up, he's battling on. He's not, he's not writing this letter from his retirement village somewhere in the Mediterranean. He's writing this from prison. And, and you might have noticed that six times in this short letter he refers to his imprisonment. But this is all part of God's providential plan. And God's providence is, is, is shown in the way that God allowed Onesimus to run away so that he would find Paul in Rome and be led, restored to Christ and now be sent back a changed man, transformed, the prodigal going back home. But not as a slave, but as a Christian brother. This is God's providential care. This is the... the the great example, and the great example of the invisible hand of God moving through every part of human history, weaving his salvation plan to, to bring restoration and grace and mercy in lives, in homes, in churches, in communities, and in nations. But forgiveness almost always comes with a price tag, doesn't it? There is a cost involved in doing the right thing before God. For Paul, it was releasing Onesimus. In spite of his own needs, he needed to let him go, send him back. Also, Paul was willing to pay for any cost that Onesimus had incurred towards Philemon. Philemon also had to bear these costs in order to forgive the runaway. It was the cost of a lost slave. Slaves were worth money. Loss of labour for a while. And then on top of that, the money that Onesimus had stolen. And Philemon might have thought, Onesimus doesn't deserve forgiveness. But that's the point, isn't it? Grace... That's exactly the definition of grace. You don't deserve it. Grace is always undeserved, otherwise it would not be grace. You cannot earn your forgiveness. And of course, Onesimus had to be willing to humble himself, give up his freedom, take the risk, go back, Apologise, uncertain of the eventual outcome. Now I want to give you a, a beautiful gospel presentation here that comes in verse 18. You blink and you miss it. Paul offers to repay what Onesimus had stolen. Now this is not only a, a very touching gesture, but also a great illustration of what we call substitutionary atonement. Complicated word, but a very deep, very beautiful. Let me explain. All of us were like Onesimus, runaway slaves to sin. 
continually running away from God. But Jesus went to the cross. He paid the price for our sins so that God's justice was satisfied once and for all. All that is left for us is to, to do is to accept the work of Christ on our behalf. Either you can pay for your sins by spending eternity in hell or you can trust completely in the fact that Jesus has already paid the debt on your behalf. What do you prefer? Would you humble yourself and accept that Jesus has paid the debt on the cross? So one pastor put it this way, and I quote, he said, when the devil rises to accuse us, Jesus says, put it on my account. When the world points out our faults, Jesus says, put that on my account. When our friends point out our many failures and our enemies gloat over our mistakes, and when our own conscience condemns us and we feel like the biggest sinners in the world, Jesus stands before the Father, raises his pierced hands and declares, put that on my account. In light of that, the cost that we have to bear for forgiveness is minuscule compared to what the Saviour paid for us, right? It's not comparable. And now the confidence in verses 20 to 25. The confidence. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. We spoke about that word last week. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confidence of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answers to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Love, Paul. Now, Paul's confidence is shown in his request to, uh, he asks, please prepare a place for me, just make the bed because I'm going to be there. Because he plans to visit upon his release. He's confident of being released. How could, how will he be released? And he says he will be released in answer to your prayers. God did grant these requests when Paul was released, as far as we know. And that was his first imprisonment in Rome. He was released and he preached for several more years before he was again incarcerated for a second time and eventually died a martyr in Rome. So Paul has confidence in God. Paul also had confidence in Philemon to do the right thing. This confidence is a little bit more dangerous when we have to trust people, be confident that they will do the right thing. Because not all our confidence or lack of 
we could go the other way, not simply not trust anybody or anything or lack off, in people will be proven right. For this, you see, you need discernment. You need to be a good judge of character. In his final greetings, he mentions some fellow workers who were with him at the time. There's Epaphras who was well known in Colossae because he founded, Epaphras was the one who actually founded the church there, but now Epaphras was a fellow prisoner with the Apostle Paul there in, in Rome. Mark is also there. You probably remember in the book of Acts how the Apostle Paul initially had no confidence at all in John Mark. But he was proven wrong. This is the other way. He felt, the Apostle Paul felt so strongly that because of the disagreement over John Mark, he had, the first great missionary partnership between Paul and Barnabas was broken off because of John Mark. They split, went separate ways. Of course, Paul was wrong, Barnabas was right. John Mark did come good. He went on to write the Gospel of Mark and right now he was helping Paul so the, the, the loop is closed there in Rome. Paul was also right about Dr. Luke. He will go on to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Paul also had confidence in Demas. What happened there? He was wrong. In his second letter to Timothy, he writes, in 2 Timothy 4.10, he writes, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. I wonder what went on there. That's all we know. Like Demas, how many people that we have had confidence in have left, gone their own way, no longer in church, no longer walking with the Lord, there are many, many Demases who love the world more than the Lord. So notice how Paul begins and ends. Verse 3, he says, he mentions grace. Verse 25, he mentions grace. Grace, like the book ends to this letter. And it was more than a polite formality. God's grace was that the very centre of Paul's life and, and ministry. If we have been shown grace, then we have to show grace to others, especially when we have to stand against the evils of this world. And there are many evils in this world, isn't there? Aren't there? I mean, I'm just going to mention a couple, some of the current evils. Sadly, Slavery and human trafficking continues to be an issue even today and it is not related to skin colour. It is related to money and to power. You might be surprised to hear or shocked even that it is estimated that there are 40 million slaves this day, this time. In Asia, the US, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, even Europe probably, 
Young girls are being sold into domestic work and the sex trade many times by their own parents. Team Tebow, uh, you might know, you might have heard the name in the US. He's, a, he's an athlete, but a, a very faithful Christian. Team Tebow's dad, uh, is a preacher. he's a preacher and he was preaching overseas. He didn't say what country, he was preaching overseas when he noticed that four young girls were being offered, were being auctioned at a, a slavery, as slaves, four young girls because it's usually girls who are being offered as slaves, unfortunately. So these four young girls were being auctioned. So he took all the money that he had in his wallet, $1,250, and bought the four of them. And then he called his son, who runs a foundation, and he says to him, he says, I just bought four girls, what do I do now? What am I supposed to do now? You might have heard the news. Westpac, one of the big four banks in Australia, Westpac has just been fined $1.3 billion for not checking money being sent to the Philippines, money that was there to sponsor a child pedophile ring in the Philippines. A lot of the boys and girls being used in the pedophile rings. It's happening, folks. Another issue for which God will hold, I think, our generation accountable is abortion. The murder of infants in the womb and increasingly the murder of infants who survive abortion outside the womb. It is an acceptable practice in our modern time just like slavery was for thousands of years, it is an acceptable practice to have abortions. And even though there are many, many, many people fighting against this horrible evil, it continues unabated. In fact, it is increasing. And many Christians are opposed to this. Many Christians are fighting against this. But what I have noticed is that a lot of us have preferred perhaps not to mention it, not to talk about it. It's too uncomfortable. You're just going to start a fight with your friends. There are many Christians opposed to abortion, but we also find that there are many Christians who support abortion, just like you have Christians who supported slavery and those who were against it. How is this possible? And because of this, I think many of us have lost heart. In the pro-life movement. Because the battle has dragged on and on and on. In many issues like this, I think it's easy to get discouraged or feel like simply you're not making a difference. Just walking away, giving it up. But we can't. God is going to hold us accountable for this and we, God willing, in a hundred years or two hundred years if the Lord has not returned, 
God willing, they will see us as a generation that somehow put up with abortion and say, how could they? Just like we're looking back at a slavery and say, how could they? Human lives being destroyed inside the womb and outside the womb. I've just given you two examples here. Just two examples. There are many more. And what does this teach us? We looked at the parables that spoke about the seed that starts to work. It takes time. That We, we need to be patient as, as we work for social change. As, as, as the lives of Christians were... We are part of God's kingdom in place in different situations, in different places. We don't go out there and burn buildings. No, we plant the seed, pray. We go there, power of influence, because God is with us. The seed that slowly grows and starts to bear fruit. Do what you can when you can and don't lose heart. For 20 years, William Wilberforce continued to present his abolition bill. For 20 years, year after year after year, he presented his bill before Parliament, many times being laughed off. But slowly, things started to change. He and others laboured to turn public opinion and political leaders against the evils of slavery and finally, just before his death, the, uh, the bill was enacted, 1807, for the abolition. Finally, finally, I will try and reconstruct a possible scene here. Work with me. Onesimus is on his way back home and he arrives home at Colossae. Philemon at first doesn't know what to make of it and doesn't say a word. At first there is not much emotion between the two of them. Onesimus hands him this letter from Paul, which was in a scroll form, right? Philemon opens the letter, he reads it. And as he reads, tears form, they well up and he can't help himself. He puts the letter aside and embraces Onesimus as a brother. That is the power of the gospel. About 50 years after Paul wrote this letter, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, was um, one of the early fathers. He was being taken to execution in Rome. That was the normal thing in those days. And at a stopover in Smyrna, he wrote to the church of Ephesus and, and commended their bishop, whose name was Onesimus. Now let's recall that Ephesus was only 150 kilometres from Colossae. And in this letter, Ignatius referred to Onesimus as the one, and, and I quote, he says, who formerly was useless to you, but now has become useful both to you and to me. 
He used the very same Greek words that appear in verse 11. While this is perhaps circumstantial evidence, we cannot possibly identify him or confirm it as the once runaway slave. It is possible in God's mercy and providence that God used this once useless slave in a mighty way as a servant of his church. My brothers and sisters, if God has saved you, he changes your character to make you useful in his service. Not useless, useful for his purposes, for his kingdom. And may God bless us. Amen.